This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Whiten, professor of evolutionary and developmental psychology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And he is the author of the recently published article, The Psychological Reach of Culture in Animals' Lives. It's great to talk with you, Andy. Good to talk with you. In your Current Directions article, you argue that culture is not something unique to humans. Rather, other animals also have cultures. So perhaps a good place to start our conversation is in characterizing what it means for a group of animals to have a culture. What does talk of culture mean to you? Well, um, I think it's important to define culture in a way that applies to both humans and non-human animals. Uh, I, I think it really has to do that to make sense. So uh, at the outset of my article in Current Directions, uh, I describe culture as simply the totality of traditions acquired in a community by social learning. And by social learning, I mean simply all we learn from others. So culture is the totality of traditions acquired in a community by learning from others. And I think that fits with the way we generally think of cultures in, in everyday conversation. You know, if you compare any two cultures, human cultures like the USA and China, you know, for example, you'll start to reel off the different traditions people have, like what you tend to eat, you know, how you eat it. Do you use knife and fork? Do you use chopsticks? How you speak, of course, the architecture and so on and on. Well, likewise for animals, if I take one of the examples, I'm, I'm associated with chimpanzees. Um, well, we've found that communities in East Africa and West Africa differ, uh, for examples, in the tools they use, in their grooming habits, uh, and in some of their courtship gambits. So, um, yeah, that, that's really my approach. Great, thanks. So, in broad brushstrokes, there are two ways of studying cultural transmission in animals, field studies in which researchers observe the transmission of behaviors among animals interacting in the wild, and experiments in which some animals are exposed to other animals modeling a particular behavior, while other control animals are not so exposed. Can you comment on the relative advantages of field studies and experiments for studying culture and how you see these methods perhaps mutually informing each other? Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to do that because uh, I, I've certainly used both. Uh, and I think both were important, they're, they're complementary. And in fact, you, you said, well, there are these two ways. I, I, I think it's more like ideally four ways. That's to say, you, know, you can study animals either in the wild or in captivity. And then in each of those, you can rely just on observations or you can perform the kind of behavioral experiments you mentioned. But I can see where you're coming from because it's true that most research in the wild has tended to be observational. I mean, you can imagine if you're studying, say, humpback whales, you know, it's difficult to do a, a, a nice, <laughs> well-designed experiment. Um, but I think this observational research is really important, and if you like, fundamental. And, you know, my background is ethology, the study of wild animals. So 
that's generally where I want to start. Because I think essentially, unless you know what animals' natural repertoires are like in the wild, you don't really know what experiments are worthwhile doing, uh, even in captivity. That said, um, it can be difficult to establish the differences, you know, like I mentioned, those for, for chimpanzees a moment ago, uh, are definitely passed on by social learning or worked out in other ways and perhaps being caused by different communities' genes or their different habitats. And by contrast, uh, ex experiments, controlled experiments can do that superbly. I mean, experiments are really scientific scientists strongest bit, bits bits of uh, apparatus in their toolkit to establish cause and effect and that's what we're talking about in social learning what causes what so um but but uh that's what they can really do so in the most basic kind of experiment which is kind of what you alluded to you just need one experimental group who can watch an individual doing some novel behavior and you can maybe train that animal to do that. Uh, and then a second group who can't see any such demonstration. And then if the new behavior appears and spreads in the first group, but not in the second group, we know the difference is caused by social learning um, that was possible only in that first group. And it's more difficult to do that kind of experiment in the wild, you know, what we call a field experiment. Uh, because, for example, you may well struggle to show that one first individual how to do some new behaviour without all the other individuals or a lot of individuals watching you doing that and, and maybe even learning from you. Um, however, you know, we and uh, others have started to do that. Um, and to me, that's the ideal outcome. So to start with a big phase of observation to as far as you can get some idea of you know, what the local traditions might be in the groups you're studying and then go in and do field experiments uh, to establish what causes what. Um, but work in captivity is often some kind of intermediate step and that, that's, that's been true for me. Culture depends on social learning, learning from others as you've described it. You have described several different mechanisms for social learning, ranging from relatively simple to rather complex. Can you describe what some of these mechanisms are? Um, yes. Um, I mean, not, not briefly, uh, if, if we're going to talk about all of them, um, because I think over the years we've uncovered an increasing range of types of social learning. Um, but if we look at the extreme, so at the simplest level, uh, learners uh, such as you know, young animals, which is often what we're talking about, uh, they just have their attention brought to the most relevant parts uh, of, of the, what in the wild are often typically very complex worlds. So, for example, the young of many species, uh, they see what their parents eat and then they can focus on that efficiently ignoring all the rest and if you think of a young ape you know one of the, the, the species i, I uh, study like chimpanzees they're surrounded by literally thousands of different options uh, all the different plant species all the different parts of the plants not to mention animal foods um, and uh, some of those are poisonous so although that might be quite a simple process, uh, it's really important. So that young wild ape um, 
rather than trying out all these different options, they can focus on the most nutritious ones and avoid the poisonous ones by copying what their mother eats. And then, well, slightly more complex is where the learner is sensitive to the attitude of the individual they're learning from. For example, if they see a more experienced individual frightened by something, and that might be you know, a snake that they've never seen before, uh, they learn uh, you know, that, that's something to avoid. And I think we can all agree, you know, that's going to be much safer than learning it oneself and, you know, possibly getting eaten in the process. It kind of underlines the importance of social learning, even of these simple kinds. But then if we move rapidly through a few other intermediates to some of the more com cognitively complex of uh, the range of social learning processes, we have imitation copying uh, the patterns of actions that you see in another individual. And I think, uh, you know, to uh, th those sort of um, new to this, this area, imitation may seem, well, really simple to us. Um, and we can do it so naturally. We're so good at it. Uh, but if you think about it, it's actually a very complicated thing to do. The brain receives that visual input about what an individual, another individual is doing that. And then it has to translate it into another modality entirely, into what it's going to be. Uh, motor output to 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 put those actions um, into operation, um, and that matches what's known as the correspondence problem. And you know, if you think about it, it's a real serious problem. Um, I can give just a, a little example of this, uh, which I often use to illustrate this. Um, and this is just an experiment, not not with humans, not with apes, but with pigeons. Uh, they watched another pi another pigeon either pecking a platform to get some uh, food out of a dispenser, or instead stepping on the platform to get the grain. And what was found was that sure enough, if those pigeons then got a later chance to, to, to go and get the grain, they tended to do the form of action on exactly the same thing on the platform, either stepping on it or pecking on it according uh, to what they've seen. So that's a, a rather simple example of uh, imitation where we're just talking about these uh, these these two options, as it were, the two actions you might do with different parts of your body, but as, in a sense that that correspondence problem has there been solved adequately. I, I like the idea that we should be proud of our imitation capacity rather than uh, shy of it. So, as I read your current directions article, I found one of its salutary effects to be to dissolve the, the perhaps narcissistic tendency of humans to believe that we humans are unique. Maybe other animals may not be so impressed. So some of these claims for uniqueness revolve around imitation and emulation. Can I ask you to distinguish between emulation and imitation and to say whether you think these forms of copying others' behaviors are uniquely human? Sure. Well, funnily enough, uh, I know, you know, if you look in a dictionary, imitation and emulation, they really seem to be synonyms. We, we often use them interchangeably in, in everyday discourse. You know, if you look up emulation, for example, the dictionary definition may start us saying imitation. Uh, but in social learning research, these two terms have been given different technical meanings. 
if you like. And I described imitation a moment ago as simply copying the patterns of actions of others. So let's, let's leave that for the moment. Um, emulation, by contrast, uh, has been used to label uh, the, the alternative strategy of copying just the outcome you saw and achieving it in a different way. So you're really copying the end, but not the means as you would in imitation, where you probably copy both. So if we go back to that pigeon example, a pigeon who saw another pack the platform, but then when it was their turn later, they went and stepped on it instead to, to get the grain, they'd be displaying a, a form of emulation. Um, well, uh, the history of our subject is that some researchers, and I think my old friend uh, Mike Tomasello was really the first to promote this hypothesis, have argued that actually it's really only humans who truly imitate in the sense of acquiring really rather complex and novel actions by copying them with high fidelity. So if you go back to that pigeon example, um, that I described, that might be dismissed as, as a case of imitation in this sense, because the pigeon is not, it's not learning to peck, uh, nor is it learning to tread on, on something. These actions are already in its repertoire. And what the pigeons are learning is perhaps rather how to deploy them in this particular context. So while we are clearly, you know, hugely imitative species, the argument is that even our closest animal relatives, uh, chimpanzees, they tend instead to emulate, to learn about the results of what others do, rather than paying attention to all the details of how they do it. And uh, debates about all of this, which animals imitate, you know, which emulate, has been very contentious. And in large part, I think the answer often depends on just how exactly imitation is defined. So according to a generous definition, those pigeons I describe imitate, um, as do some other birds and mammals, but according to a more restricted definition of imitation, well, then perhaps they don't. And um, I guess, you know, my own conclusion could be glossed as somewhat intermediate. Uh, so we've done experiments uh, in which either children or chimpanzees can open what we've called an artificial fruit. So it's designed to be something like, you know, the problems of such animals having opening a fruit in, in the wild. Um, but they're able to watch someone who knows how to remove a series of artificial defences, if you like, to poke and peel this, this artificial fruit. Children were indeed very faithful imitators. They copied how to remove each of the three defences in the way they'd seen. Uh, whereas the chimpanzees, they did it for one of the three, but not for the other two, where they tended to emulate. So I think that that sort of um, is quite consistent with, with a lot of research in this area. So it, it's not a simple either or, or a yes or no. Uh, it, it's an interesting uh, uh, intermediate. Uh, it, it's certainly in the case of that, con that contrast. Another argument for human uniqueness is that only humans take the time and effort to actively teach other humans and that teaching is a powerful way for culture to be transmitted. Do you buy teaching as a uniquely human activity? Uh, again, much depends on exactly how you define 
teaching. I think you know, in all of these, these uh, topics we're talking about, there's almost a two-stage process in doing the science. You know, one is to agree a definition, and there's a lot of disagreement about that. So I think it's important when you're publishing a paper, you know, at the outset, you have to say what your definition is. So people know what you're talking about. Then you can do the empirical research to say, well, does it occur or not? Uh, now, in the case of teaching, we tend to think of teaching as something defined by the intent to teach. I mean, you and I, you know, our careers have been based on that, I guess. Um, but that's difficult to test in animals. So researchers have instead come up with a definition of teaching in functional terms, that is, in terms of its beneficial consequences alone. So if, if you're watching certain behaviour by a, a parent, of some species, for example, it has some costs to performing it, and but it seems to be done only to facilitate facilitate the development of a skill in the offspring. Well, that counts as teaching in this functional sense. The animal doesn't necessarily know it's teaching, in other words, but its behaviour has evolved to serve that function. Um, and I think the best known example of that is in meerkats where the young have to master the very dangerous business of catching and dispatching scorpions, you know, which are potentially lethal. And adults have been found to catch scorpions, then they remove the sting initially, and then they hand that over to the young, the young grapple with them and eventually kill them and uh, perhaps eat them. But then as the young become, become more competent, they're then given scorpions with a sting. And um, so that's a kind of structured teaching function. And similar kinds of support like that have been catalogued now, actually, in, in many species of animals. Um, and particularly, uh, it seems to me, species that earn their living by predation. Because the young have to make this huge leap, really, if you think about it, from suckling milk, which is easy for them, to catching and killing prey, you know, like scorpions, or if you're, if you're a, a cheetah, an, an antelope. So perhaps that kind of teaching uh, function allows them to, to do that. So I think teaching per se, um, or teaching in these general terms, may not be unique to humans, certainly not, but probably intentional teaching may be. Um, and uh, I think that's the way it seems at the moment. So I think it's the same as for imitation of a culture itself. I don't think these simple dichotomies work anymore. Um, it's not that they're unique to humans. In some forms, they're interestingly widespread uh, among animals, but that doesn't mean the differences don't exist, of course. I think the differences in all these things are actually vast. Human cultures, human teaching are hugely more rich and complex in humans than in any other species. Thanks for those really compelling examples of, of teaching. So. As a final contender for possible human uniqueness, uh, humans have pointed out that humans leave lasting traces and artifacts in their world to shape the next generation's behavior. So we create stone tablets and court records, encyclopedias, instructional manuals, journal articles, so that even if we can't transmit our accumulated knowledge directly to our children or students, this knowledge may still live on. So again, I ask you, do other animals show versions of this kind of transmission route by 
changing others' behaviors, by making relatively long-lasting changes to their world? Um, well, uh, animals don't write journal papers, although um, I, I seem to recall that um, Sue Savage-Rumbaugh uh, included uh, Kanzi, was it, and, and others uh, in the co-authors of one, of one of her papers, but I'm not sure how much they were involved in the writing of it. But no, more generally, there are some limited cases of lasting traces. Uh, and in fact, archaeological excavations at a chimpanzee study site in Ivory Coast, uh, Côte d'Ivoire in West Africa, where chimpanzees crack nuts with stone hammers quite routinely nowadays, they found examples of, of the hammers at depths corresponding to over 4,000 years ago. Um, and of course, it may be that the tradition has been continu continuing for much longer than that, but I think that illustrates the considerable fidelity and stability across this period. And uh, there's a part of Brazil where it's been found capuchin monkeys also use stone tools to crack open nuts. And they've done excavations there that have, have traced this down to over 3000 years old. But there, interestingly, the marks on the stones are different across four different time zones, suggesting cultural changes at these times, which is interesting. Now, whether we think of these as kind of cultural evolution or even cumulative culture uh, is more questionable, I think, but it does seem to suggest some cultural change. Um, but perhaps I'm not really getting at your question. I think in the shorter term, juvenile chimpanzees and capuchins living in these communities, they can learn not only from observing skilled adults working, but also a lot from the artifacts themselves, which are often left behind. And those kind of give important clues to, to the behavior they lead to master. Um, have we time for another example? Because it, um, I, I, I've talked about primates a lot, I'm a primatologist, but another great tool user is the new Caledonian crow. <laughs> um, these birds use a variety of natural tool materials to extract extract grubs from holes and one of these involves tearing a, a strip off the side of a plant called pandanus and conveniently that has little uh, spikes along the edge of it so it's really good for getting grubs out of holes. Um, now in this species some experiments have been done of the kind I talked about earlier in chimpanzees and they've not shown much evidence that these crows will learn from watching and copying alternative actions in others and an alternative suggestion, which, which seems quite bizarre, but, you know, perhaps, is that they learn instead from the shapes on the leaves where the tool pieces have been stripped off, which in different parts of New Caledonia have different shapes. And some early experiments have shown that these birds will indeed learn to prefer different simple shapes of artificial leaves in order to, to get some food rewards from watching others. Um, but those are fairly simple. So it remains to be seen whether they do this uh, for shapes as well uh, as, as, are complicated, as, as the complicated ones in the wild. Um, however, um, I, I think the bottom line here is that, you know, none of these kinds of artifact-based transmission lines appear intended to pass on information, which I think was behind, you know, all those human examples you gave. Um, it's, it's just that they're, they're there, some, some of them last a long time, and youngsters can learn from them. So 
where humans do pass on materials with the intention that their children or others can continue to learn from them. And, you know, I, I hope some of my papers may, may survive me. Um, that then still stands as a human speciality. So I think, you know, that's, that's my, question, my answer to your question. And in a way, I'm, I'm looking back on, on the questions you've asked and the answers I've given, um, I'm often trying to express some sort of nuanced uh, middle, middle ground or a, a sort of complex ground between, between the, the, the two extremes of you know, the, the questions you're asking. And so it is for teaching, so it is for culture, so it is for <laughs> imitation often, I think. But that's the excitement of, of this field. You know, it's such a, a rich field we're uncovering. I appreciate the nuance you are adding to your answers compared to the black and white uh, way in which some people treat human uniqueness questions. Um, I also appreciate um, learning for the first time that there are records that go back 4,000 years in artifacts produced by non-human animals. I had no idea. So that's all the time we have for our conversation with Dr. Andrew Whiten. So thank you very much, Andy, for the very cultured conversation. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Rob.